Great stuff. If you could have a seat again, thank you. Well, wonderful. So I think it's the 10th of January, is that right? Yeah? Good. Okay, just, just before I get into the rest of the message, I've, I've just checked the date, and it is the 10th. Our younger youth are going to go for a group today, so that's years uh, 7 and 8, so if you want to join them, then uh, you're very welcome to, to do so, if you're in year 7 and 8. If school is a distant memory, then you better stay where you are. Um, so it's the 10th of January, I think, and I just wanted to ask before I go any further, if you're enjoying the new year so far, are you getting the hang of it? Are you going all right? Ish? Yeah? Good. Ish. Some ishes around. I hope it's going okay, ish, for you. And you trust in God in all that he's doing uh, in this this year. I believe that this year is to be a year of adventure for us. A year of faith-filled adventure in God. As we step into what God has for us as individuals and as a church. As we trust him in new ways. I'm really interested to hear what Andy was saying um, about that, that sense of stretch, because I went out for a walk yesterday, and I didn't pick a particularly good time, because it was uh, raining rather heavily when I went out. Um, it got worse as I was out, and I came back and needed to get completely changed, despite having a waterproof jacket on, because everything was just soaking. But uh, on my walk, I went to Dunallan and, and stood just looking at the lake, what, what I could see of it in the near darkness, and um, just was challenged by God, really, to, to just see if I would trust him again. I was praying all sorts of things for the year, for myself, for the church, and, and God just challenged me about, firstly, his love for me, but also about trusting him. And I, I remember looking at this, this branch just over the lake, and as God was speaking to me about, would I trust him? As if, you know, as if there was a swing there, would I just jump for this and, and swing, even though I wasn't quite sure what was going to happen next? A bit of a bizarre image, I know. Um, but just this thought was about trusting Jesus with new things. And I believe that this is going to be a year for new things for many of us. Jacob was talking last week about God using all of us. And I believe that's true, that God will use each and every one of us. And for generations, Christians have been doing this. They've been stepping out and trusting God and going on mission and doing greater things for God. And from the earliest time where the tiniest church was, was birthed, through to today where there are millions, billions of Christians around the world, uh, people have stepped out trusting God, and uh, and Christians have preached the gospel, Uh, Christians have taken the message of Jesus to the world, Christians have established radical social care, radical social reform, Uh, they've set up hospitals and schools and reformed um, all sorts of areas of justice uh, and and, and human rights and equality and all sorts of different areas. And Christians have done so much of this. And, and, and if you ask them why, many people would say, well, it's because Jesus told us to go. It's because Jesus told us to. He told us to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you to the end of the age. And I think that's true for many people. Many have gone because simply Jesus told them to go. But I just want to look again at that motivation today and look again at what motivates us to go. What is it that motivates us to do good things for God? Uh, Is it just because he's told us to? And that's a good reason to do it. I just want to see if there's there's another reason or two that we can come up with today, or one particular one that we can come up with today. How is it that we're going to get this done? And I I think it does matter. Now let me just flick across to a 
slightly different image just to help you. Some people love to-do lists. I don't know if you're one of them, but some people really love making a list of things to do and ticking them off as they get them done. Uh, there's a slight downside in this. Some people's lists look a bit like this. It says, number one, make to-do list. Number two, check off the first thing on the to-do list. Number three, realize you've accomplished two things on the list. Number four, reward yourself with a nap. Now, that might be you. You might enjoy that kind of to-do list where you start off and you think, oh, at least I'm going to put a few things down. Apparently, the key is this, to, to put a few things down that you're just about to do anyway and then write them at the top of the list so that when, you, when you've kind of finished the list, you can do those things and you've got a massive sense of accomplishment. You've got some things done. Some people even write down things that they've just done on their to-do list. So you can tick off even more things. It's great, isn't it? Someone recommended a book to me. Um, and, and there's courses you can go on this. Management courses you can go, leadership courses you can go on, how to do the best kind of to-do lists and to get jobs done. Someone recommended a book to me. Um, I think it was called Getting Things Done or something like that. And it was by one of these management consultants who was uh, trying to help leaders particularly reestablish their inboxes, trying to work through their to-do lists, trying to work through how to prioritize different things. And so this guy recommended this book to me. I bought the book. It took me three years to get around to reading it. Um, and I, I, I did eventually read it, and I think it was quite helpful. But it just, the fact, it just amused me that it took me so long to get around to read the jolly thing. Um, but I, I don't know how this works for you, these to-do lists. And I, I guess that New Year's resolutions are a bit like to-do lists. They're, they're, they're a bit like that for some people, where they write important things on a list and, and at least I've written them down, and maybe if I keep looking at them, I'll get them done. But most of us know this, that New Year's resolutions tend to just stay on a list. It doesn't actually get them done. They're just on a list and nagging us, reminding us that we haven't done them, that they need to be done. Sometimes to-do lists can be um, quite difficult because they just nag you all the time with jobs that need doing that haven't quite been accomplished yet. Now, some people find this incredibly motivational to write stuff on a list. Others don't. I find it difficult when the stuff on the list is what other people want me to do, not necessarily what I want to do. You find that? And this, I think, can happen. It's, It's one thing for me to manage my own priorities, but when it's other people's that I'm trying to fit in, the things I don't really want to do, but I have to do them and I feel obliged to do them, That's a less attractive to-do list. And I wonder if as Christians, at times, our faith has been presented like a to-do list of stuff that God wants us to do, that we're not really all that keen on doing, but it sits there a bit like an unwanted New Year's resolution or an unwanted item on a to-do list, something that God has told us we need to do that we don't feel particularly qualified to do, we don't feel particularly interested in doing. We tried it once and it didn't really work. And actually... The things like going on mission and having an adventure for God sink down the list a little bit because there's other stuff we want to be getting on with and we just kind of feel guilty about this stuff. And just it's, it's there on the list. We know we ought to do it. We know that somebody ought to do it, but we'd be quite grateful if someone else would get that done, please, so that I can get on with doing the things I want to do. Does that make any sense? And, and these, these commands that God gives us sometimes can be presented in a way that it's just another item on the list. Another thing I have to get done. Being motivated by the desire to obey God is good, but I think there's a, another way we can look at some of these things today. As a church, we 
believe in mission. We believe in going. We believe in living our lives for Jesus every single day of the week. And this year, we're going to be talking a lot more about this and in practical ways, helping us get into this a lot more. We believe in mission. But I think we can ask the question, why do we go? Why is it we go? Is it just because Jesus tells us to, or is there another reason why we go? Paul writes this, for Christ's love compels us. For Christ's love compels us. And I want to talk today about the theme of being compelled by love. Compelled by love. I think this is a brilliant and key principle for us. So we're going to read one story uh, from Mark's Gospel, and it's Mark chapter 10. And it's in verse 17 to verse 22, if you want to have a look in your own Bible to make sure I'm not making it up. It says this, Mark chapter 10. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, let me turn on, teacher, he declared, all these things I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Now, this passage comes in a setting where Jesus has just had children brought to him, and he's blessed them. There's been a conversation about the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and and people have taken the kids away again after they've been blessed. And then this man comes in the next scene to Jesus and comes and runs to him, which is highly unusual in that culture. It's quite a hot environment often. And, And you wouldn't get men, particularly men of any standing, running in public. So this is quite unusual, this man's running. And he then falls on his knees before Jesus. And we can't tell if this is great respect or desperation, but whatever the reason, he's falling down before Jesus, having run to him. And he asks a brilliant question. He asks this, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What can I do to have the kind of life that God wants me to have? And if you've never asked that question, I'd encourage you to ask that question. It's a great question to ask. What do I need to do to have the kind of life that God wants me to have? And Jesus is going to give an answer. He's going to give an answer to this man. But first something's going to happen. He has a little bit of a conversation. And the man says, Jesus says, you need to keep these commands. And the man says, yeah, I've done all that. And then something happens, and it's here. It says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. It's an amazing verse. He looked at him and loved him. And I want to unpack this this phrase for us today, that Jesus looked at this man and loved him. It's really simple, but I think it shows us a few things about uh, this being compelled by love. And I think this characterizes Jesus' response to so many people. Because Jesus was sent because of God's love, and he lived in God's love, and he presented God's love, and he died because of love, God's love, and he rose because of God's love, and he lives uh, today because of God's love, and he's compelled by love. And Jesus looks at this man in this moment and loves him. What do we see about love and the way Jesus presents this love for this man? I want us to see today that love determines the response. Jesus speaks to this man because he loves him. 
His, his conversation is coming because of an overflow of love. It's out of love, not out of intellect, not out of trying to win an argument, not out of interest, not out of the fact that he's just frustrated with a man. It's out of love that he's going to speak into this man's life. All that Jesus does comes out of love. And, and that immediately challenges me, because I ask myself the question, does everything I do, is everything I do determined by love? As I look at people to respond, is it love that's shaping my response? As I go about my day-to-day business, is, is, is everything I do shaped by love, or is it shaped by getting things done, or is it shaped by my frustrations, or is it shaped by all sorts of other things? Is it really shaped by love? Jesus, love for this man determined his response. Secondly, we see this, that Jesus' love doesn't lower the bar. Let me just explain this. At school, I, we, everybody has to do sports. I, I didn't particularly enjoy it until we got to athletics. And I loved doing athletics, not because I was particularly good at it, because it was just varied and you got to do stuff that you didn't normally do. I guess it was also summertime. So standing in your shorts and your T-shirt and your tra- trainers was much more attractive to me in the summertime than it was stood in my rugby kit all through snowy winters as the ground is kind of hard and icy and you're needing to dive onto the floor and all that sort of stuff. Um, or cross-country running, where you sort of go for a walk, in my case, but you kind of wander around for a bit and get back to the, uh, the PE section and, and kind of get registered in again, all that sort of stuff. Some people really enjoy it. I, I enjoyed it when we got to athletics. But it's only recently that I've realized that athletics are incredibly unfair. I was kind of middling at the time. I thought it was, but I was doing okay. But I've only just realised that athletics are quite unfair because there's me, and I'm not. I'm sort of five foot nine. I'm not particularly tall. Doing the high jump, and so you run up and you do the high jump. You think, yeah, okay, I've, I've managed. Kind of got over some of them, and then the bar keeps going up and it keeps going up, and and you realise eventually that there's this tall, lanky kid near you, who's really good at it. And, and it's only just recently I've realised that he's got a natural advantage that I didn't have, and I shouldn't be too hard on myself for being my height, when this guy is just taller and going to be better. That makes some sense? Because it's just naturally unfair. I think it should be like golf. In golf, there's a handicap system where, based on how good you are, you can start off with a, a score that helps you kind of achieve some parity with the other players. It'd be great, wouldn't it, if athletics was a bit like that? But, well, you're just rubbish at running. So, so you, can, you can start you know, 10 meters from the finish line. You're, you're better, so you can start 20 metres from the finish line. You're brilliant, so you need to start way over there, right? On your marks, you say, go! And then the kid that's rubbish would have a chance. For the high jump, you could lower the bar for people who just weren't very flexible. Not their fault, they're just joints aren't as flexible. They could just go like that, yay, and they'd do just as well. And then the tall, lanky kid who's brilliant would get the bar up here somewhere and would have to jump over. Now, that never happens in sport, does it? Glad I'm talking about sport, actually. If you happen to look in the records online, you can discover that a certain Mr. Barry Neveson was quite a sportsman in his day. Glad that Barry's on sound today. Barry, where were you on the... Let me get the date right. The 7th of July, 1985. Germany. You were in Germany the other day, apparently. According to Google, anyway. Barry was um, representing Great Britain, I think, or England, at least, on that day. And the under 17s uh, in long jump. Um, um, young Barry at under 17, I guess he was quite good at this. I'm going to pace this jump out. Excuse me. Right. 
This is roughly a meter, not accurate, it's roughly a meter. So this is, this is the, it's run up to this wall and then he's going to jump. Okay, not triple jump, he's just going to run and then jump off and land. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven meters, 66 centimeters. It's about there. So Barry ran to that wall, jumped, and the, the last part of his body landed there. Is that about right, Barry? That's ridiculous. Half of us running, that's a challenge. <laughs> but being in the air for all that time. So just to let you into a secret, Barry can fly. <laughs> brilliant. I see, brilliant. It's amazing, isn't it? Now, I could never do that. And I would love to have the opportunity to compete against Barry where, where I can jump from a different place than he has to jump from because he's really good. But it's not going to happen. And Jesus, for this guy, doesn't lower the bar. He doesn't make it easier. He doesn't, doesn't change the, the, the requirement to come into the kingdom. And the, ki- the requirement is really simple. The requirement is this, that you come as a little child. You come with nothing else other than your trust in God. And you say, God, I need you. It's really interesting that the passage before is Jesus receiving the kids and blessing them and saying, there's no one greater in the kingdom of heaven than these little ones. Why? Because they just trust the Father. They just receive in a simple way. And Jesus doesn't lower the bar for this guy. Even though he's well-educated, even though he's kept the commands, even though he's done so many good things, that doesn't qualify him. Just trusting does. And so the requirement stays the same. This might seem contradictory, but love discriminates. How, how can that work? How can you not lower the bar and discriminate at the same time? Jesus loved the whole world. He had thousands of people follow him, but out of those thousands, he chose 72 and sent them on mission. Why 72? Why not 74? Why not 76? I don't know, but he sent 72 on mission. You might have been miffed. You might have been one of those ones. We might have been one of the ones who were kind of 73 to 90. Well, I didn't get picked. And the story of your life might have been you didn't get picked to be one of Jesus' 72. It's all right for them. They got in the book and you didn't. Tough. Does Jesus love you any less? No. But you didn't get picked. Jesus chose 12 disciples. Again, you might have been numbers 13 upwards. You weren't chosen. Did Jesus love you any less? No. But he chose 12. Out of those 12, he had three who were particularly close to him. Peter, James, and John. What happened to the other nine? Did he not really like them? Was he disappointed that he chose them? No, he loved them. He, but he discriminated. He particularly invested his time in three. Out of those three, there's one that is described as the disciple Jesus loved, and that's John. But even John isn't the one who confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, I'll build my church on that. That's Peter. So, so even between the two, we've got one that Jesus loves and one G- Jesus says, I'm going to build my church on this. And they're different and he treats them differently. Even as part of the three. Love discriminates. Love isn't always fair. Jesus has this rich young man come to him and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says to him, you need to sell all you have, give away everything, and then come and follow me. When Nicodemus comes to Jesus, 
and says, Jesus, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? He says, you need to be born again. So Nicodemus can keep all his money and be born again, and the rich guy needs to give everything away, and then he can come. Love discriminates. Love, in Jesus' case, says the right thing to the right person to get the right result because he loves them more than their stuff, more than what they do. He loves them, and he doesn't want them to get caught up in anything that's hindering them. The rich young guy that comes to Jesus in this story needs to hear Jesus say, you've got to give everything. Why? Because the everything was getting in the way of simply trusting. For Nicodemus, Jesus needs to say, you need to be born again. How do I get born again? Well, this is what happens. And Jesus tells him the story. Because his intellect and his faith was getting in the way. So love needs to discriminate between this one and this one so that they can both come to God. If if Jesus said the same message, it would have been a hindrance, not a help. Love needs to discriminate to be true love. Finally, on this point, love goes where obligation doesn't. Love speaks where obligation is silent. Love does tough things. Jesus didn't need to say anything, but he does in this story. He spoke to this man out of love. Love consistently does the difficult thing. And and you know, if you know the Bible story, you'll know that God loved us before we loved him. We read these verses. This is how God showed his love amongst us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. So the story of Jesus coming to the world is one of love. We've just celebrated Christmas. The incarnation is what we call God becoming man. And the Bible tells us that that was because of God's love. The very reason that we celebrate Jesus becoming man was because of God's love. We also read this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us as a demonstration of God's love. And you, we haven't got time to, time to go through it today, but you just read through the gospel story and you discover that, that it's full of Jesus' love. He looks at the crowd when there's 5,000 people and has compassion on them. He suffers with them because of his love for them and feeds them. We look at um, the situation where, where Lazarus' friend has died and we read that Jesus weeps uh, when he hears the news about Lazarus dying. Jesus is touched by the different uh, events of people's lives. Why? Because he loves people. He dies because of his love. He rises again because of his love. If there's one message I could preach that I knew everybody would grasp and everyone would hear and everyone would understand, it would be this. God loves you. God loves you. And immediately you're thinking, well, that's not very profound. But I wonder if... Now, my wife's a nurse. She's a nurse. She works in a, for a GP surgery. That means she has the, the joy of looking after people and the, the struggle of injecting people who don't want to be injected sometimes. And most of us don't like injections. Most of us don't like inoculations. This is where you go to the... Maybe you're going on travels and you need to get injected to stop you getting some nasty disease when you go overseas somewhere. And, and the idea is that into your body is put some kind of agent that resembles uh, the, the thing that would give you the disease. And your body fights this agent, and, and therefore you develop some kind of immunity to whatever it is you were trying not to get in the first place. Uh, now that we understand the principle, but I wonder if 
sometimes us hearing that God loves us is a little bit like that injection. It's not the real thing, but we've kind of been inoculated to it. We've kind of got a bit of truth, but we've not really let it sink into our being somehow. It's like we've been inoculated against God's love, almost. Because we hear it often enough that we think, oh yeah, I've done that, got that. Yeah, God loves us. But I'm not sure that we ever really get it. You see, I'm still discovering this. When I come to pray and come to seek God, time and time again, he's reminding me that he loves me. You'd think I'd have got it by now, wouldn't you? But still, when I seek God, it's one of the first things he says to me, is, Stuart, I love you. So obviously, I still need to hear this, and I think we still need to hear this too, that this would seep into us and sink into us and settle in us. This simple truth takes years to understand that God loves us completely. That when you woke up this morning, you were loved. That as you go through this day, you'll be loved. That if you remember to pray and read your Bible, you were loved. And if you forgot, you were loved. That God loves you completely and utterly. And Jesus knew that he was loved. At his baptism, the Father spoke this word. He says, you are my son, whom I love. So Jesus starts his ministry knowing you are loved. And I just, we're going to wrap up in just a, a couple of minutes. But it's New Year. Maybe you're short on these. Because New Year's a time when people look at their bank balance and people worry a bit about whether they've got enough money to pay the bills. Actually, people don't tend to in New Year. I think it's January the 20-something is when, it, when all the credit card bills come through people's doors. And then they worry about having enough money. And I just want to draw a parallel here and say perhaps the state of our bank accounts can sometimes represent the state of the bank account that we have with God. The kind of love bank account, if you like, with God. You see, you can only be generous at Christmas if you've got money in the bank. Or you're putting it on the credit card, in which case it's going to come out of your bank account one day, whether you like it or not. So you can only pay if you've got it. And I think some of us have tried to go on mission and we've tried to serve God and we've tried to do stuff without really that, that coming out of a revelation of God's love for us. And I think perhaps some of us have tried it because God's told us to do it. But without having that deep revelation that, of love that God loves us utterly and completely and wholeheartedly. Because I think that revelation of love, when it motivates us, transforms our going. It transforms the way we interact with people. It transforms the way we speak to people. It transforms everything. If we can live with an attitude that we are loved and that we're compelled by God's love to go. If you've run out of God's love, today might be a day to receive it again and receive it afresh. Love needs renewing. Love needs restoring. Love needs replacing in our lives. Today, as I look at Jesus, I realize that I fall far short of his love. But I recognize this, that he was compelled by love in everything he did. Yes, he was obedient to what his father told him to do, but he wasn't only obedient. He knew that he was loved, and everything he did came out of that love. I believe that we will be the transformational people God has called us to be when we recognize that we're loved. When we know, deep down, in our hearts, that God loves us. That God loves us. That God loves us. I wish I could look everybody in the eye and say, God loves you, because he does. God loves you. And that love isn't just to make you feel nice. It's to transform the way you see yourself. It's to transform the way we see the world. It's to transform everything about us. Because we start our day secure in his love. 
We move into our day still secure in his love. We end our day every day secure in his love. That's his plan for us. And out of that love, we can then be compelled by love to go. That's why we go on mission. It's why we reach the lost. It's why we tell the good news of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he was compelled by love to come. So we can be compelled by love to go. I urge you, know that God loves you today. Let's pray, shall we? Father, I thank you for your love. Thank you that you care for us and love us and came to be with us. I thank you for that conversation you have with that guy whose story we've told today. Lord, I pray that as we trust you, that you love us, as we take those words at face value, as we believe in them, as we base our lives upon them, so we would be transformed by your love. Lord, we don't want to just go because you've told us to. That's a really good reason to do it. We want to be compelled and convicted by your love. That your love would drive us because it's deep within us, bubbling up. In Jesus' name. Amen.